We're starting into our second week of this series on church life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you will notice, those of you that, here, that were here last week, I didn't add the music and still didn't bring the guns. I, there's a part of me that really wants to. I think that would be hilarious. But now the reality is, is that church life, living in the light of the resurrection, living today in this life, there's good, there's bad, and there is ugly. I wish that we could say that it was all good, right? I mean, I wish I could say that all Jesus ever had to say about us was good stuff, that he looked at us and approved of everything in our life. But the reality is, is as we read through these seven uh, letters to the churches, to the seven churches of Asia, we see that that's just not the case, that he's got something for each church, or, or at least certainly he has, he has things to say to each church. And we, he, he has a pattern that he kind of follows but that pattern doesn't always look the same. Here, here's the thing. Before we even jump into the text today, I just want to, I want to remind us, I want us to go over this. Why, why is it even relevant? Are, are letters that were written 2,000 years ago to people that we will never really get to know here in, on earth, and the situations and circumstances that they lived in were drastically, vastly different than what we do, uh, is there really any relevance to this? And I think as you read and, and study these letters, we saw it in Ephesus, we'll see it again today as we study the church in Smyrna. There's places where Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Let, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. And, and so we begin to hear him saying and using universal language, he's specifically addressing issues in these churches. But then he is turning and saying, this is applicable to every one of you. And so what we recognize is these seven churches, they weren't the only seven churches that existed in Asia. It wasn't like the gospel had gone out all over Asia, but it was only seven churches that came from it. There were, there were churches in, it was all over the place. In fact, Acts tells us that as Paul went into Ephesus and he spent two years in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19 tells us that there was no one that didn't hear the message, that the, that the gospel message went out to every person from Ephesus in his two years of service there. So we know it's not that, that, that those seven churches aren't the only churches that have issues or that Jesus wants to, to highlight their strengths. or you know, that's, that's not the case, but they stand for us. They stand for, stood for those people in that day, and they stand for us 2,000 years later as an example of what Jesus would have his people look like, live like. It's pre-approved principles for living. If you ever want to know what your life should look like, Take the good that Jesus says to these seven churches and implement it. And take the bad that he says to these churches and repent of it and implement the opposite. Implement what his principle is. The reality is this, is that we, we, our, our vision here is to worship and lead others to worship. I don't care how you say it, whether you say you're a church that plants churches or disciples that, that makes disciples. The reality is we're striving to, to raise up through the gospel, by the power of the gospel, a people that live worship, not defined in moments of gathering like this, or at least completely defined. And that certainly, I, I hope that your heart was attuned to God and that you were worshiping in this, in this moment where we gather together and sing his praises. I hope that, that you're focusing on him, thinking of him and, and not performing for others and not thinking of, of what you can do or how well you can sing. And man, I hope this person next to me, I, I hope they hear me. If you hear me, you know that's... Sing to your heart's content, Jesus is worthy. He is worthy. That is worship. 
But that is not the end of worship. Worship is called to be a lifestyle. And Jesus gives us pre-approved principles for lifestyles of worship in these seven letters. And disapproved lifestyles of worship. In fact, just we'll, we'll work off of what we studied through in, in the Ephesian letter. In the church at Ephesus, they were praised because they were orthodox. They lived holy, upright lives. They were a righteous people. They were a disciplined church. They looked at one another and said, hey, you're sinning, quit. They were bold enough to be in one another's lives and be serious about church discipline. And it doesn't start at the pastor. It starts with you. It starts with the church. It starts with an individual living a self-controlled, self-disciplined life. And they were able to look around and they were saying, hey, I'm striving for this. You strive alongside me. They were, their, their, their theological and doctrinal acuity was, man, it was, it was above and beyond the call. I mean, it, they were on it. They were accurate. They knew the teachings. And they held to them closely. They were even praised, if you heard last week, they were even praised because they hated, they stood in opposition to the actions of a particular people group. I know we, we don't like that today, but that's the reality of it. Jesus praised them for hating the work of the Nicolaitans. But then he had this against them. They didn't love. So all of their religious effort, all of their work was undermined by this one thing. Their motive for doing it. They'd lost their first love. And so we see in this, hey, church at Ephesus, to, to return and make your religious effort uh, uh, an act of worship, come back to your first love. Don't, don't abandon. Don't abandon the, the, the doctrinal acuity. Don't abandon the holy righteous lifestyle. Don't abandon the, 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 the stance and the opposition to sin and evil. But come back to your first love. And all of a sudden, in doing that, in, in repenting and coming back to that, those religious, religious efforts become acts of worship that are honoring and glorifying to God. And we can learn from that today. Man, we live in a very religious city full of very religious people who expend a lot of religious effort who have abandoned their first love. We can learn from this today. It's relevant to us in our very walk today. And so as we stand as a church, as we come together as a church of people who have this prestigious place in history, who recognize, who stand in, and walk and live in light of the death, burial, and resurrection, we get to proclaim that. We get to tell people it actually happened. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and He rose again. And today, Jesus is alive, and we are looking forward to His coming again. That's the beauty of where we live. That's, that's the hope and the confidence that we have as believers. It's relevant. But that shouldn't just affect us when we're gathered in this room among other people that accept us. You see, I, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that there's some very relevant truth from the letter to the Smyrnans. And that's a made-up word. I don't, spell checker didn't recognize it. Google didn't recognize it. Smyrnans. I mean, I figure we say Ephesians for, the, for Ephesus, so why not Smyrnans, right? I mean, makes sense. So if you type it in somewhere and it doesn't spell right, it's on you. I've warned you. Don't use it beyond here, maybe. That's, maybe. 
But the reality is I think there's some very relevant truth to, to the life in Smyrna, to the, to the church that Jesus wrote to in Smyrna. And as we read today, I just want to remind you the overarching theme of what we're striving to do here. As we live in light of the resurrection, we're calling one another, we're recognizing that a lifestyle of worshiping God isn't limited to rituals and traditions, but it's expressed by making Jesus' fame the intended outcome of all we do. When you get up in the morning and go to work, it's Jesus' glory that you live for. When you sit with your friends and, and, and just fellowship and enjoy one another, it's Jesus' fame that you're, lit, that you're doing that for. When you are spending time with your families, when you're serving on mission, it's Jesus that deserves the credit. Is Jesus this worthy of the, of, the, of the glory for that? That's the call. That's the overarching theme. And today in Smyrna, in the letter to the Smyrnans, I think we're going to hear a very direct and relevant call to us as a church today. In fact, as I've studied and read these and thought about how each one applies, there's, there's a point to be made here, I think, that's more applicable than any other to our church here in Springfield today. Well, let's just read the passage and, and we'll go through and see what God has for us. We're going to begin in Revelation 2, verse 8. We'll read through verse 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. <clears throat> Now, Jesus kind of breaks his pattern in this letter, and he goes back to it in the letters that follow this. In one other church, Jesus has no condemnation for them. It's only, it's only commendation. It's only good. This church, I think, is getting right what Ephesus was missing. I think that they were living holy lives. I think they were doctrinally and theologically sound. I think that they were standing and opposing the evil of the world and they were loving Jesus first and the motive for their lifestyles and the motive for their actions were love. I think the reason that Jesus came to them and didn't condemn them for anything was simply because were they perfect? No. Were they, did they have it all together? No, they're people. But the thoughts and intents of their hearts were driven for seeing his glory and seeing him made much of. But he comes to him and he, he says, you know, hey, Smyrna, here's some special words. Now, Smyrna is an important city in, in, in Asia. It was known to be a, an extremely beautiful city because of its, because of its buildings and, and, and the way that they had laid the city out. It was called the Ornament of Asia. It had beautifully paved streets, was, it had big temples, baths, gymnasiums, the, a theater, a stadium, and, and a library. At the time of the writing of Revelations, it, Revelation, it's estimated that there was about 100,000 to 200,000 people living there. It was influential in Rome's cultic emperor worship. It, Rome, you know, they raised up their emperors as deities, and so they said, you're going to worship him. He is your Lord, and, and you have to proclaim that and, and buy into it. And if you don't, you're done. You're dead. Get out or die, one or the other. Or you might go to jail and get beaten up. 
But the reality is, is that it was, that was a cult. And it was extremely important there. They, they had not only one temple, but two temples devoted to emperor worship in Smyrna. Smyrna also had an impressive harbor with trade connections. So there was all of this stuff going on in Smyrna. And, and, all of, and we don't know how it happened. We don't know how it came there, but, but Smyrna is about 35 miles north of Ephesus, so it's not that far. But we, we don't know how Christianity moved into Smyrna. We don't know who planted the church there necessarily. We don't know, we don't know the history of, all, of it all. We know that, like with Paul, you know, he went into Ephesus. We don't know how that happened in Smyrna. Smyrna doesn't play as big a part in the Bible. You don't read about it all the way through the Scriptures like you do Ephesus. There's conjecture that maybe, you know, it says in Acts 2 that there were people from all over the, all over the nations that were present when the Holy Spirit came down on His people and, and they began glorifying God and speaking in languages that everybody was understanding and Peter stands and preaches that first gospel message and 3,000 people were saved. Smyrnans were present that day if the Scripture is true. Some people believe that Smyrnans might have been some of those 3,000 people saved and they brought Christianity back with them. But some people believe that when Paul went into Ephesus and he preached there for two years and, and, and taught and, and spread the gospel, it says, I told you already, Acts chapter 19, that, that there was not a household that wasn't touched and didn't hear the message as Paul did his work there. Some believe that, that the Christianity and the, and the gospel spread from that point. But what we do know, because Jesus takes time in this letter, in this, in this moment where he is laying out for John, that things of the end and things to come, he lays out for John a letter. He says, write these words to the church or to the angel at the church of Smyrna. So we know at some point, this is what we can be certain of, that the gospel took root, that somebody came, the gospel was planted, and from the fruit and power of the gospel, a church sprang forth. That's the process by which you see the church being planted and grown over and over and over through the New Testament. And so here we know it happened. And Jesus cares for them. He's concerned for them. He wants this letter written to them. But <laughs> along that way, oh, let me just one little odd, odd fact. I think you'll find this interesting. I, I don't really have anything to base this off of. Or, or no, actually, that's not true. I have plenty to base it off of. I don't know why this has turned out to be the way it is. I can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that God has blessed in Smyrna because of the faithfulness of the church. But of all of the seven churches that are represented in Smyrna, they all exist in ancient cities that no longer exist. Today, should you decide to get on a plane and go to Smyrna, you'll, you'll be able to go there. It's no longer. You're, you're going to find ruins in Smyrna. I think I've got some pictures of ruins of, of the Agora, which was a central gathering place in the city, and people would go there, and, and art, artistic people would show up and display their art. Theatrical people would show up and put on their little plays, and, their, and just a place where people met together. There's a huge place where, where these ruins exist, but the reality is, is that many of these ruins are, are built upon because the city still exists today. And a city that was 100, and, 100 to 200,000 now exists somewhere over 2,700,000 something. It's the third largest city in, in uh, Turkey. It was called Smyrna up until the 1930s when the Turkish government came in and said, you know, that's really a Greek word. We'd rather call it Izmir, which is the Turkish translation. And so now it's nationally and internationally known as, as Izmir instead of Smyrna. But here's the beauty. The church that received this letter from Jesus is still represented there. And it, it looks different. They, they function differently. Some of their traditions and some of, their, some of, their, um, uh, some of the ways that they gather together, it, it's probably very different than it was when they received this letter. 
But that church, the church that heard this letter read for the first time, had a legacy that lasts even today. It's amazing. The power of the gospel just being carried on age through age. And, and honestly, I, again, I don't have any way to prove this, but I think it's because of the faithfulness of the people of God passing on the gospel that God gave them. But he comes to them now and he says, Hey, Turkey or, or Smyrna, listen. And he introduces himself. And, and in Jesus' introduction, you heard it, you know, he says, I'm the first and the last and, and the one who died and rose again. Jesus, he inter- introduces himself as eternally existing, death-defying hope and confidence of every Christian. There's two things we learn in this introduction. Jesus is eternal. He has always been. There's not a moment in history, there's not a moment in time or even before the clock started ticking that Jesus wasn't there. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God. You go down to verse 14 and it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's only one person in all of time and before that that can apply to. That has to be Jesus because He's the only God that ever stepped into history took on the nature of a man and lived among us. He has always been. When, when the words, I let there be light, were proclaimed, He was there. When man was shaped and formed from the dust and the woman taken from His, from his rib, He was there. When they rebelled and rejected God, He was there. He has always been and the truth is, is that not only has he always been part of and in God, he's always been the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He always will be. The Bible ends, second to last verse of the Bible, Revelation twenty two twenty. He who testifies to these things, surely I am coming soon. He who testifies to these things is Jesus. These words, surely I am coming soon, are his. He's, and, and then we respond, amen, come Lord Jesus. You see, He's not just from the beginning. He's going to be there when the last second ticks. When the clock quits twisting and turning. When time doesn't matter anymore, Jesus is going to be there. He's coming back. And not only will He usher in the end, He will reign forever in it. Always forever reigning. King of kings and Lord of lords. He is eternal, the first and the last. What what, what does that mean to us? Why does it matter that He said this to these people? Why does it matter that we hear it today? Because when Jesus demonstrates His eternality, because Jesus is eternal, we can learn that there is not a moment, not a moment, not a second, not an instant at which we can exist that He won't be there. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, never walk alone. We are never by ourselves. He loves each and every one of His people. He cares and is concerned for your safety, your provision, your protection. He longs for you. Man, that is probably for me one of the most moving truths of the gospel he humbled himself he took on flesh because somewhere in his knowledge 
in His vast, eternal knowledge. I'm there. You are there. And there's not a moment that you walk today, there's not a moment that those Smyrnans existed, there's not a moment that their church struggled, that He wasn't there. He wasn't concerned for them and longing for them and looking forward to the moment that the time came that He would return and bring them to be with Him in victory. This was part of the process. He came. He proved that He's eternal. And now we know there's not a moment in which we exist that, that He's not with us. But not only that, not only that, we see another truth. Jesus overcame death. He's the eternally existing, death-defying hope and confidence of Christianity. And because Jesus overcame death, our bodies may die or could be killed. But in Christ, in Christ there is nothing that can end you. Man, I don't know. I, I mean, that alongside the fact that everything I'm enduring and that anything I endure doesn't end me? Man, confidence, hope, we can do anything. We can go anywhere. As long as He's the intention of our lives. There's nothing that can undo that. There's nothing that can, that can take us from Him. We have eternal life, not as a future state, but a present possession. You've heard me say it before. It's a, it's a truth of our church. It's, it's, the, it's the truth of all churches that we're grounded on, that we're built on. It's not something we enter into in a long time when we die or when Jesus returns. You have it now. If your faith is true, you are in eternal life. There is nothing Neither death nor life, angels nor demons, light nor darkness. There's nothing, nothing that can separate you from the love that's in Christ Jesus. In Christ, there's nothing that can end you, that can undo you. If our bodies die, if our bodies die in Christ, when the end comes, when the first and last returns, when He shows up and the clock quits ticking, when that happens, we're raised up and we're given new bodies. And you know what the hope of those new bodies is? is that it's not scarred by the stain of sin. Your temptation is done. The trials of life are done. The tears and pain and suffering is over. No more to be seen or heard or felt. Man, we talk about utopia. This is going to put any dream of a utopia that you have in your mind to shame because we will be standing in the presence of our Creator. No longer separated, unseen from what we can see. No longer just by faith, but looking with our own eyes, in our own flesh, standing in our own skin, walking on our own two feet, touching Jesus with our own hands. We're going to get to see Him. We're going to get to walk with Him. We're going to get to talk to Him. That's the hope we have. Because there's nothing that can end us. Because Jesus overcame death. He is... The, the eternally existing, death-defying hope and confidence of every Christian. That's our hope. That's our, and Jesus, man, this is important to this church. This is important. Because when He starts to give them their commendations, when He starts to speak to them about the good, it's not going to sound like good. I mean, we, 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 I don't think we would judge it as good. 
when he breaks into his commendations for this church, it's built on what they're experiencing. He says, I know your trials. I know your tribulations. I know your poverty. And again, hear this. When he uses that word know, the word know that he's using there is speaking about an intimate knowledge. He knows it. It's not like it's some understood thing that he can see it. Jesus has experienced these things that this church is experiencing. He knows it intimately by his own experience. He came here. He walked here. He lived here. It's not something that he's looking at from the outside, unable to empathize. He knows by his own experience. He says, hey, I know your tribulation. I, I, I know you are oppressed. I know that because of your faith, because of your walk in, in, in me, I know because of your trust in me, I know that you've lost jobs. I know that you're, you're, you've lost family members. I know that you've been segregated and separated. I know that you're suffering for my name. I know. I know. I know because you've lost jobs, you are extremely poor. The, the word he used here for poverty is abject poverty. It's like beggar level poverty. This is like homeless people. I'm, I, I don't know for certain because I wasn't there. But I'm doubting that there were many Victory Missions and Grand Oaks Mission food pantries for these people to go to. And they were poor. Beggar level poor. And he knew it. Man, he knew it. He'd suffered. He'd felt that sense of poverty. He knew it. And he goes on. He says... He says, not only are you oppressed, not only are you poor, you're slandered or you're vilified. You're, you're, you're being made villains when I know you're not. You see, the, the interesting thing about this particular passage is that as the church was receiving oppression and, and receiving um, persecution from the outside, it was the result of the Jews. The Jews who, who um, in Rome were given the freedom not to worship the emperor. In Rome, Jews could... could where they were under an umbrella of protection and, and their lifestyle and their, and their uh, religion was protected. And so they didn't have to worry about someone coming in and, and abusing them or persecuting them because they were, were not worshiping the emperor. And for when, when Christianity was first founded, when, when the church was first born, the Christians enjoyed the protection of this umbrella. Well, pretty quickly the Jews said, you know what? We're going to end the Christians. We're going to be done with them. And we'll just let Rome know they aren't with us. They're not part of us. They don't belong to us. You see what Jesus has to say about them? They're not Jews. They're the synagogue of Satan. <laughs> I don't, I mean, there's no, there's no putting a good twist on that. I, even if you're Bill O'Reilly, there's no spin that makes you feel good about that. I'm serious, man. That's big stuff. The synagogue of Satan. And so here these Jews were pointing them out in Smyrna. That's a Christian. He didn't belong to us. Christians were being killed, thrown to wild animals to be eaten, burned at the stake. In fact, there's a story of Polycarp. Polycarp was the second bishop. He eventually became the bishop of the church in Smyrna. He wasn't the bishop at the time the letter was written, but was likely present in the church when, when they first read this letter. And he became a martyr for his faith. And, and at that moment, when they were giving him his opportunity to recant his faith and, and save his own life, he says in response, he says, 80 and six years I have served him, speaking of Jesus. 
and he hath done me no wrong. How can I, how then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And at his, at his rejection of their opportunity for recanting, they lit a fire, burned him at the stake. Tradition tells us that the fire didn't touch him, that he didn't burn. And so to finish the job and to do what they started off doing, they stabbed him and allowed his dead body to burn because he wouldn't turn from his faith in Christ. It's the very thing that Christ is calling his people to, faithfulness unto death. And here it is, man. I mean, here's, here's, the, here's the one that I think I, I almost have to say with a question mark. You're oppressed, you're poor, you're, you're vilified, and you're rich. Rich? Really? Rich? I don't know anybody that, that grows up wanting to find a job that makes them look and smell oppressed and makes them poor and then continues to add on and heap on the, 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 the looks and the disregard and the, and the hate of the culture. I don't know anybody that grows up wanting to get a job that I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. I don't know if we're going to be able to eat tomorrow. You know, that's the job I want. There's not many people that grow up that way. That's not, what, that's not our view of good or wealthy. But here Jesus says, man, this, what, what you're experiencing is good, and you're not poor. You're, you're, you're not oppressed, and you're, you're not vilified all alone. You are rich. You are spiritually rich. You are under my blessing. You are under my protection. You are under my care and my concern. It's such a different view than what we would have. Oh, if they're under his protection and concern and, 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 and provision, why? Why aren't they like the church in Ephesus, which blew up, was extremely influential in that city, turned the city upside down because it was so influential? Not this church. Struggling, hurting. The city was so, so given to, the, given to Rome that they were willing to abuse and kill these Christians. Man, how is that rich? Because in Christ, things look a little different. In Christ, we have to count things differently. I mean, think again to the words that Chris read, Romans 5.8, about what our, our, our faith and our suffering do together. They grow us, it shapes us, it molds us. Listen to these, 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way. Man, that doesn't sound good. But not crushed. Perplexed. That's enough, man, that doesn't sound great. But not driven to despair, persecuted. I really don't want that. But not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. The reality is, is that our promises and, 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 and the hope that we have, it's not tied to the circumstances of life. All too often, we walk around acting as if, oh man, everything's going my way. I like it. Life is good. I'm happy about what's happening in my life. God must be for me. And then as soon as things go wrong, I wrecked my car. I got to get a new job. I lost my job. I don't know how I'm going to get a new job. Man, my finances fell apart. In bankruptcy. Just lost my family member. I, whatever. What did I do, God? How did I make you so mad? What, what did I do against you? That is all a result 
of a prosperity gospel that says God blesses you when you do right and He curses you when you do wrong. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that He is always for us, that we aren't crushed, that we aren't forsaken, that we're not forgotten. Our circumstances in this life are not given to us to demonstrate to us God's will or His, His, His un, unwill, I don't know, His living outside of His will. The circumstances of this life are something different altogether. Romans 5.8 teaches us that they are given to shape us and mold us. You want to know what His will is? Read these seven letters. Live and, 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 and adapt the, the good things into your life and repent of those things that, that He calls the churches to. Again, in James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of, of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let the steadfastness have full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You're rich. You're spiritually rich when, when, when you're being grown up and matured in your faith. And, and here's the thing. I think Smyrna was in this place where Jesus came to them with only commendations, with only His goodwill and His good words, simply because as they had suffered, they had been matured. They were driven to a place where they were on their knees constantly looking for Jesus to protect and provide and to, and to work. It was easy in Ephesus. Oh man, they were making a difference and they started to stand in their own power and they lost their first love. <laughs> Smyrna was never given that opportunity. They struggled and they scrimped and they strived and they suffered and they were oppressed and they were poor and they were vilified. But because of all of that, they had become very rich in the Spirit. They were being grown up to the point that they lacked nothing. And this is why it's so important. This is why it's so important that we remember this and that we get this right in our own lives. He is always with us. He overcame death for us. There is nothing that can undo us. Nothing that can separate us. And then he gives them these words of encouragement. We've got to push through. He didn't have any words of, of condemnation. There was no bad that he had to say to them. I mean, certainly from a worldly perspective, it sounds pretty bad. By the way, there's going to be more suffering coming. You're going to suffer for 10 days. There's going to be tribulation. Okay. That, that might sound bad, but Jesus says, no, that's good. And he encourages them, kind of commands them. Do not fear. The first encouragement he gives them. The persecution of the Smyrna is going to continue. We don't know if it was 10 days exactly or if it was a, if it was a predetermined point of time. Some, some commentators choose. I like to say it's both. Why couldn't have they just dealt with this new persecution, this, this new issue just for 10 days? I mean, certainly it was going to continue. It was going to be a part of their life always, it looks like, from their testimony. But the truth is, is that even if it was just 10 days, the reality is there's a suffering that we know is always, always, always going to be temporary because the hope is not in this life, but the one to come. Suffering ends the moment Jesus returns or you go to be with him. Second Corinthians, Paul kind of touches on this. He says, uh, for this light and momentary affliction, this light and momentary affliction teaches us that, that all of our persecution, all of our suffering is temporary. This light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. One doesn't even look right compared to the other. It doesn't, it doesn't compare. It, it fades. It's dirty. It's dull. Suffering, pain, struggles of this life are nothing 
in comparison to what's coming as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He says, be, or he says, do not fear. And then he says, be faithful, stay the course, don't quit, commit, endure, persevere, keep on, keep it on, however you want to say it. He wants us not to give up. Don't give up. Push forward. Uh, There's obstacles in the way. Keep going. There's barriers that seem to be slowing me down. Keep going. It feels like I'm dragging a weight on my back. Push forward. Keep going. Don't give up. Be faithful. When did he say they could quit being faithful? To death. You hear that call? You hear that expectation, that that worship, that pre-approved lifestyle of worship? Be faithful unto death. That's what we have. That's the call. The pre-approved lifestyle of worship, do not fear. Here, it's going to get really personal because I think this speaks to our church specifically. For the way. Do not fear. Do not fear. You're like, I'm not afraid of anything. I might be afraid of heights or I might be afraid of spiders. I might be... No. Man, church family, hear me. Put your phones down. Just look at me and hear me. As your pastor who cares for you, who loves you, who's going to stand one day and, and, and be held accountable for the way I lead you, who's given responsibility over your souls according to Hebrews 13. Listen to this. I think we're a church that's bound up by fear. I think we're afraid. We don't, we don't face persecution. I, we, don't, we don't face the stuff that the church at Smyrna did. Absolutely not. I think we've been lulled into this sense of false security. And I think that, that this church is bound up. And, and, and I'm not saying it's just our church. I, I think it's a, a problem in many churches in our, in our culture. We're bound up by fear. We're, we're receiving persecution and we don't even realize it. We're being, we're being deceived and lied to. We're being oppressed. Not physically. I think spiritually. Because we've bought into this lie that if we buy the right house, have the right job, make the right amount of money, that's what God wants for us. That's a lie. That is a lie from the devil. We've been told that if the culture likes us a lot, that that we're being good Christian. It's a lie from the devil. We're being told that if we have the approval of everyone around us, we must be good Christian folks representing Jesus well. That is a lie from the devil. It's time for us to wake up. It's time for us to hear the call, do not fear. Fear of losing our comfort. Fear of living in such a way that, that we make, I'm saying go out, make a lot of money and make sure that a bunch of it goes into the, to the spread and advancement of the kingdom. Go work hard, demonstrate well God's goodness to you and then give a lot of money to the advancement of the gospel. Don't stop here in your church. Do it around the world. Do it in, in organizations and places that need your help. 
But give up your comfort. We don't all need to spend every morning at, at Starbucks or Panera drinking $4 cups of coffee. We don't all need smartphones with data plans as big as we can get them. We don't all need the niceties of life. But we're afraid of not being comfortable. We're afraid of having a house that's smaller than people expect us to have. We're afraid. It's time to wake up, church. Do not fear. And that fear, that fear of losing comfort, I think is oftentimes driven by, by a fear of giving up our selfish desires. But I'm not getting what I want. I really want what I want. Or a fear of rejection and standing before people. Church, if we're siding with the people in our culture, we are opposing Jesus. Man, he, he praised His churches for standing in opposition to evil. He praised His churches for being distinct. But certainly we're not call, called to isolation and to be jerks. There is to be a love for Jesus that drives us to love people. But I think we're too afraid of drawing that line because we don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be disapproved. Right. I mean, just test this in your own life. And if you're a member of this church or not, it doesn't matter. The reality is, how many of you shared your faith this week? How many of you had opportunities to tell somebody something good about Jesus? I, I will guarantee you that every person in this room spoke to somebody this week and had an opportunity to live for Jesus' fame in front of someone else. I can't guarantee you that we all did it. We're afraid. Do not fear. Oh, we're doing some good things. We're going to Africa. I'm getting over my fear. We're doing some good things. We got people who are looking at doing international mission work. But we're afraid here. We're afraid in Springfield, the place where Jesus put us first. Do not fear. We're afraid. But hear this. Hear this. This is the only way we get past it. This is how we fix it. This is how we recognize and live in this pre-approved principle for worship. We recognize Jesus' love. Fear opposes love and love drives out fear. Fear is against love. It pushes it away. Love drives it back. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So if you're experiencing fear, if you can identify in this moment, I know it's tough. I know it's difficult. I know that this is not where we want to be. I know that this is not a, 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 an attribute that we would like to have about ourselves or this church. But the reality is, I think it's true. Man, I think it's true. I think we're, we're suffering in this. We're, we're languishing in this. There is, there is fear. And, and when there's fear, there's an absence of, of real love. Perfect love, biblical, agape love. You see, fear is given to self-protection. Certainly fear keeps you from falling off a cliff because it doesn't let you go close enough to the side. It keeps you from jumping out of a perfectly good airplane, at least without a parachute on. I mean, it keeps you from doing some stupid things. But it also keeps you from living the life that we've been called to live. Love, on the other hand, 
is about giving yourself up for the good of others. It's about sacrificing yourself. It's not about protecting yourself or living for your own purposes or living for your own existence. It's about giving yourself up so that others can benefit. 1 John three sixteen through 18, you've heard me read at least one of these verses before. By this we know love. So this is how we know what love is. That he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought also lay down our lives for, our, for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's, God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Look, if you're going into work and you're the only Christian there and you don't say a word about Jesus or the gospel, you are not loving anybody. It is an act of sin. It's evil to know the gospel and not share the gospel. You are condemning people by your actions to death. Eternal torment. Oh, but God knows His people. He's going to save them. But God told you to go and tell them. But we're afraid. We're fearful. I might lose my job. Make yourself so valuable at your work that you can say whatever you want and not lose your job. Be the best employee you can be so that when you speak about Jesus' glory, they're like, well, we can't get rid of him. Nobody, nobody fired Mother Teresa. Nobody asked her not to show up at, at stuff, did they? I don't agree with all of her doctrine or theology, but nobody would tell Mother Teresa not to show up. And when she spoke, people listened. Live your life so well that when you speak, it's no surprise. When you speak, people are like, wow, that's right. Or I don't like that, but you know what? I got to have him. Can't get rid of him or her. Oh, man. But I might lose a friend. Is your relationship worth that person's eternal life? Do not fear. If we're going to get over this, we've got to first recognize that Jesus has loved us perfectly. He is the first and last. He is the one who overcame death. He is the the eternally existing, death-defying hope and confidence of every Christian. Your works are not. Your circumstances are not. Your efforts are not. Jesus is. And He has given you that love unconditionally, extravagantly. He's washed it over you. There's nothing that can take it from you. Do not fear. And when we get past this fear, you know what? We're going to run faithfully because we're going to be running, empowered, and caring His great love for us and His people. And hear me, church. I love you. I've struggled with the fear. I've led you fearfully, and God has been dealing with me in the the last eight, nine months. It's time to put it aside. Trust Jesus. He has loved you. There is nothing that can end you. There is nothing that can separate you. And today, when you walk out into the world, you have your first opportunity to walk in real freedom, to be able to sing words like, there's nothing going to hold me back and mean them. To live them. Let's pray. Father. God, I I struggle with this. I know how it's affected my life, my leadership, my, my walk outside the church.
God, I know what you're doing in me to overcome it. I'm, I'm, God, I just ask, I beg of you that as people sit here today that they don't hear a person ranting but pleading with them for the, the good of their lives and the good of the, the good of the gospel and the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. God, would you move in us? Would you rest your spirit upon us? And help us to see what it is that we fear. How, how we have allowed that doubt in what you have done and can do to rule in us that it has hindered us. God, I, I know, we know, we know that we can't undo your plans. We know that we can't, that, that we can't stop your work, that, that you are going to, your will is going to be done. God, I, I know that as we, as we turn and repent of the things that have bound us, that we're going to be able to glorify you in ourselves and in our hearts and in our minds and in our words and our actions, and we will be moved to a people that don't just worship in a moment, but worship in our lives. God, will you do that work today? Just start that work in this moment. Call us to repentance. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.